Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Julian Richings, an actor you've seen in, well, everything. He pops up in Cube and The Witch and Orphan Black. He played rock and roll legend Bucky Haight in Bruce McDonald's Hardcore Logo. He takes key roles in Patriot and Channel Zero and Supernatural. And he played A.A. Milne in that Canadian heritage moment everybody loves, which is a fact I'm always delighted to share. And he stars opposite Sheila McCarthy and Yannick Besson in Anything for Jackson, which makes its world premiere September 1st at the Fantasia Festival. Julian picked The Night of the Hunter, which I thought we'd already done on this podcast, but it turns out Jeremy Lalonde and I tackled it about a year ago on his show, Black Hole Films. It's actually kind of weird that this is the first time this has happened in almost 300 episodes. But anyway, the movie can totally withstand a second look. Charles Lawton's sole directorial effort about a sister and brother chased through the countryside by the relentless preacher who's just murdered their mother only seems to get more and more powerful with each viewing, a testament to its incredible performances and stunning aesthetic, which resonates through decades of subsequent American cinema. So here we go. This is someone else's movie. It's a film unlike any other I've experienced, and it operates on so many different levels. So I, I love film. I love uh, contemporary American film particularly. And this one is one of those films that feels like it's been hanging around your subconscious since you were born. And I seriously don't know when I first saw it. I, I, I actually read a, a piece in The Guardian where a critic said basically the same thing, where he felt that he knew the film, uh, but he couldn't actually identify when he'd actually seen it. Maybe he caught a bit of it on the television or something. And I feel the same way. It, it takes me back, and it takes me back to some of the classics that we grew up with. It's a Wonderful Life, The Wizard of Oz, those great films that feature children prominently. But it turns those tropes upside down, and it takes you into a nightmare territory. But it doesn't go schmaltzy, sentimental, there's no happily ever after. It goes into deep into the psyche of the characters and of the society. And it uh, employs devices that are so innately theatrical and compelling and easy to watch. And yet they operate and chill you on a deep, deep level. And, um, and, and they just resonate. But at the same time, they're very easy. It never feels like you're watching a classic. It never feels like, for instance, the cinematographer I know uh, was responsible for The Magnificent Ambersons, the, the Orson Welles film, which is a great film, but it feels mm -hmm. like a classic. And uh, th there's something about Night of the Hunter that feels at the same time like a pot boiler, um, like film noir, like something that's easily digestible. Yeah. When I when I did Jeremy Lalonde's podcast, we were sort of talking about the, the nightmarish nature of it and how he was completely unprepared for how surreal it was. Um, but the morality is so clear that it, I think my fascination with the film is that it's constantly arguing with its textures. It's uh -huh. this beautiful gothic expressionist nightmare yeah. that is also a very very simple story about good and evil and a bad man and good children and its story reduces to such simple lines to such clear you know the kids are in danger we must help the kids somehow yes. we we're, we're there's never any question that we should be on the preacher's side we're always with the kids yeah and it's about this force that invades this small town and, and 
destroys a family and all, and ha- and it's just his latest stop. It's not even he's a terminator. He just keeps showing up and doing the thing and showing up and doing the thing. And yet the the film is so beautiful that you're almost over and over again you're drawn to him because Robert Mitchum is just so magnetic and he has yeah. to be the the performance depends I mean or rather the film depends on the performance but it's just this this portrait of evil incarnate that is so unnerving and so beautiful at the same time that the movie is the movie itself is tempted to join him yeah it feels it feels as though it almost it keeps almost rooting for him it feels like the only time that there's a counterpoint is when Lillian Gish appears on the screen. And there's yes, that incredible yeah. scene where she's on the porch with a shotgun in yeah. her rocking chair. And he's outside singing, leaning, leaning. And then they both have this incredible, beautiful counterpoint of melody. But it's um, the only time where he's met his match. And, and there's, there's a literal grappling of hate and love um, at the same time and, and we've already seen that tattooed on his fingers and it, mm-hmm. it seems to be the moment where we've got two great actors actually taking each other on uh, so yeah it's that for me is the, the crux of the film right there yeah and when did you first see do you have a clear memory or, I, or is, I, it, is it that sort of Amalgamation it's foggy, of, to be honest yeah. with you. I, I think that the first time I clearly sat down and watched it was at university uh, in a film club in the context of, you know, like people around me going, yes, you've got to watch this and sort of adding um, uh, an objectivity and an analysis to it. Um, but I, I sort of I, I couldn't listen to it. It was just it was so compelling. I didn't want to discuss it on academic terms. I, I just wanted to let the feeling continue um and 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 as i was thinking about it today i i realize i i feel so complicated about it because it's not a film we we just mentioned about how uh, robert mitchum is evil incarnate but nobody is let off the hook even mm. lillian gish who plays hope mother goose who gives a home to all these wayward children she's estranged from her son yeah. And she's she's heartbroken and she's looking for something and she's vulnerable. Shelley Winters is vulnerable. She's um, she she's I've forgotten what what her husband describes her. Uh, she lacks common sense, her husband says, before he gets carted away by the police and yeah. hides the money in the doll. Um, everybody um, is prone to this. Um, scourge in society the children too it's not just about good goody good two shoes children i mean the children in the schoolyard sing the hanging song and mock the two kids whose father has just been hung um and you know and then our our saved children um with lillian gish also have children that are exploring their sexuality and and being led astray and and not understanding what's happening and then Finally, uh, the, the, the other thing that I, I, I kind of throw back to you is that for me, it feels like the film doesn't really have a satisfactory ending in that we never see the bad guy uh, disposed of. It's yeah. off screen. It's a strange kind of letdown. But the real terror is the, um, the, the, the mob, the uh, lynch mob in the town that comes to to kill him 
And it's the very same lynch mob that's been the congregation singing, bringing in the sheaves earlier. And uh, it's, it's a terrifying scene. Yeah, I wonder if maybe the theme, it's something that I thought of this time through, that maybe the theme is temptation, is that everyone is given the opportunity to be their worst self, partially through the preacher who comes along and encourages them, but also because it's always just there. The, uh, the schoolyard kids, that's, that's the key to me, is that he's not there to tempt them, they're just already leaning that way. And kids, of yeah. course, are terrible, cruel monsters as much as they are innocents, just because they haven't developed a moral conscience. And yeah. this movie knows that and, and exploits it. And yeah, the kids are the mob, right? I mean, it's the same instinct, except that the kids don't have the chance to be godly. They're, they're the ones being dragged to church. Um, yeah. Or the, other, the older kids are the ones being brought into town to go to church and, and struggling with, with the, the social expectations because they just want to go out and play. And yeah. the preacher makes it possible. He allows everyone to just, a, you know, abandon the, the moral compass that we all have as adults because he is a godly man. He presents himself as, as a good person. And therefore, if he's saying it's okay to do something, it's okay to do something. I mean, there is an excellent argument for him being the devil himself. But I think his weakness, I don't think the devil would share the human weakness he has for, for sex, basically, for Mm-hmm. Uh, lacy things and curly things, as he describes it, is yeah. the the temptations of the flesh that the devil would the devil wouldn't see that as weakness. The devil would be totally fine with it. But yeah. even though the impulse towards sex is a good, a positive thing for most people, his religion has perverted it for himself. You know, like he's talking to God all the time. But uh, the most terrifying thing you can imagine is that if his God is real, like if he's actually talking to somebody, as opposed to just a self-mythologizing monster, if he really has a relationship with God, that's worse. Oh, yeah. Because it would imply he has some understanding of human frailty that no one else is privy to. And so he just moves from town to town and from person to person, allowing them to be their worst selves, encouraging them. Well, and um, excited and drawn to the areas that... um, offend and, and give him horror so yeah so we we see him the, the first scene he's driving a car and he's uh, admitting that god is um he operates with god and in the arrangement that they've mutually agreed upon yes so so god is obviously an extension of his own morality and then next cut hard cut to a, a strip bar yeah where there's a woman um, parading on stage and he's uh, clearly struggling with being turned on. And we, but we, we, what we see is uh, the phallic flick knife the, uh, the, the come out of his pocket. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's suppressing everything. And there's, a, there's an impotent rage inside of him that's burning. It, it's, it's extraordinary filmmaking. And it's, it's really um, uh, a spare and, and um, it, it, you know, there are no lingering shots of emotional reactions or anything. It's just quick and crisp, and it keeps the film moving. Yeah, I always forget how short it is. It's yeah, it feels longer. It expands in the memory just because those gorgeous long takes in in sort of moon dappled, and they have to be studio sets, right? That barn, that shot of him approaching the barn through the through the shadow, yeah, or the kids in the loft in the barn. Yeah, and the preacher in the shadow. It's just, I now of course you can do it digitally, but you don't. You you wouldn't want to. Just the idea that someone had to build that and figure it out. Stanley Cortez and Charles Lawton between them figuring out the best ways 
to tell this story. And, and create an environment that's an emotional environment. It's like German yeah. expressionism that's an extension of the emotion of the film rather than literal. And, and I th- think it's incredible. It gives the whole feeling of a constant chase so that we have the image of two children holding hands with a little doll running and running and running. And we never linger on surface details. There's a moment where they, they float down the river in the boat and they come to a, 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 a halt at, at night time and they're drawn towards a window, and uh, we hear a, a children's bedtime story being read, and uh, the children go up and look in, but we're not allowed to look in and see what they see. We only see their longing. Yeah. And, and all we see is a, a, a silhouette of a cage, a bird in a cage. And then they decide to go to the barn and sleep in the barn instead. So they still haven't found their their home and they're still on the run. And, and, and I think those economic gestures by Lawton keep the thing moving and moving and moving. There's another point where um, they're escaping from their own home from the preacher and uh, they've just they've trapped him in the basement and they've run out and the the camera lingers on the external uh, nightmarish picture of the the, um, the the home lit by a street lamp with them running across. Uh, we don't see him smashing out out of his uh, confines. We actually hear the door, but what what we do is we see the beginning of the chase, and and it it you know it. It makes us feel anxious. That the whole film f- feels that it's going quickly. We have to run, run, run. Yeah, it's again, it's that elemental thing where you're seeing it from the child's perspective, even though we're seeing it from a god's eye. It's not, you know, what Spielberg did with ET, where he framed the entire movie at eye level for a three foot tall viewer and, and puts you in the mind yeah. of the kid. This one puts you emotionally in their state. We don't fully understand why these things are happening or what's going on. And if you take a step back and think about how much time passes and how long these kids are on their own, it's absolutely horrifying. But you're <laughs> you're in this sort of fairy tale adventure where these two children yeah. who are completely unprepared for anything, any of these challenges, let alone the, you know, their their parents are gone. Their uh, their their only their only parental figure has usurped that position and is trying to kill them and is, is determined to harm them. Um, yeah. The wicked man chasing the good kids. It's, it is a fable, but the, the emotional stakes are, are absolutely real. The kids are not playing it cute or they're not Muppets. They're not, um, you know, twinkly child actors. There's no Shirley Templing going on here. These kids are young and scared and, and trying to cope. And it's just, every time I see it, that's, that's where I, I, I'm stunned. Like Mitchum being able to give that performance, he's an incredible actor and yeah. he's an adult male who's in the full command yeah. of his faculties. These kids are just being steered there and somehow it doesn't feel, you know, I'm not worried that they were exploited. It just feels like they were direct. And I, I'm, um, having, have you seen directed by Charles Lawton or Charles Lawton directs the night of the hunter, the, the no, extra? I've seen a, I've seen a clip of about six minutes where you hear his voiceover where he's reading some of the original story. Mm. I've seen that, um, and it, it it's interspersed with a few moments of him directing the children, and that's yeah, it. Yeah, he he let the camera roll. Uh, so there is a second film on the on the Criterion edition, uh, okay. and it was released maybe ten years ago, I think it first surfaced, called Charles Lawton directs the Night of the Hunter, and it's just 
basically it would be short ends. It's just him coming into frame and talking and leaving and yeah. setting up and going back to one. And it's absolutely hypnotic. It's right. I mean, first of all, he's a movie star and you know what he looks like. So when you see him just sort of blunder into the frame without really thinking about his blocking, yeah. it's fascinating. Right. Uh, but then to watch him direct and talk through things and, and just be present in this, in the yeah. frame of the film that we know so well, it's, it's right. amazing. It's just hypnotic. So yeah, you should yeah. seek that out as soon as possible. Okay. Yes, I will. Good. Okay. Um, that's, that, that's a good resource. I'd love to, uh, what performances are you, you mentioned the kids, uh, mm-hmm. those, those two children. I mean, I, I, I break up, uh, at the end when the boy is with Lillian Gish and she says, get me an apple and get one for yourself too. And then he listens to her tell a story, but he wants to hear more and his hand reaches out and touches her hand. I, I, there's, some, there's an unstoppable emotion there that I, I can't contain. And it, it's extraordinary. And he has worked that right up to that point. And there's mm-hmm. a sort of a release and a relief at the same time. Yeah. And we... And we feel the longing, right? We feel the need yeah. for, for, for a parent or for normalcy or for some domesticity after the adventure they've been through. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's a curious domesticity too. It's, it's not a, a traditional conservative domesticity. I mean, it starts with her hitting him with a switch and then yeah. she smacks him and then she scolds him and then she talks to herself. And then we realize that she's missing her own child. And, and so it's a very complicated two-way relationship. Yeah, I was trying to figure out if there's an intention of her trying to um, sort of knock him back into a normal world, if that's part, if that's a metaphor or a motif. I'm not sure that it is. I think it's just a, an acknowledgement that things were not that great in, in the era where this film is taking place for anybody. Yeah. Even the good parents are going to be flawed and and almost brutal in their, in their care, but it doesn't mean they don't still care. Shelley Winter's um, performance is extraordinary. We, we're horrified by it because of the neglect of her children, but it's captivating in its, uh, in its frailty and its vulnerability because she's clearly wanting to fall in love and she's being pressured to fall in love by her community. And she does love very ineptly. She loves her children, but she makes some very bad choices. And it's a, it's a very sad, very uh, very deep performance. Yeah, I don't think the character on the page is as well considered as it is in Winter's performance. She's just, she's got so much soulfulness and so much uh, sadness, melancholy in there. In the, yeah. And and once she agrees to marry the preacher, he can't perform he she can't get the thing she thought she wanted most from him that he can't give her what she needs and so that translates in her performance into this sort of twisted longing and and this this physical pain that she seems to be experiencing Mm -hmm. with in bed with him where she's just she she's sort of stopping herself from reaching out to him and in this pushing pulling thing and it's such a strange inarticulate emotional key to play and she just nails it. I mean, there's, there, it's not funny. It's not ironic or laughable in any way. It's tragic. It's absolutely, and, and and she is surrounded by other characters that are broader. Um, mm-hmm. There's the, the the couple in the ice cream parlor um, that that are almost stereotypical. That that end end up in a raging drunken mob. 
Um, and then there's Uncle Birdie too, who again looks like he's come out of a different movie and feels like a stereotype, but he's got grace um, and and uh, longing. He longs for his wife that's been deceased for 25 years. He longs to help the children in their plight, but he's inept. He's like many of the yeah. adults in that he's frail and inept. And when it comes to the the, the moment of, of decision, he's not there for them. Yeah, which is heartbreaking in its own sad, small way too, right? That that he knows he's failing them. Yeah. And we have the, and again, I think it's simply because an actor directed this film that you can see this breathing space given to incidental characters as much as the leads where you just have this moment to appreciate the pain or the sadness or the paralysis and we all know he's trying and it's not enough and that's the worst possible thing and it sets up gish too later in the film where you're just braced for her to fail because every other person has failed these kids or or been uh impotent in in the moment of crisis and her calm and her her poise you just I know she has a spine of steel. I was just waiting for her to make a mistake. And yeah. that more than anything else, your heart is pounding in your chest. I've seen this movie a number of times. And those those final minutes are always just nerve-wracking for me because yeah. this time it might not work out. There's a gestural quality to the performances that I really like. And they're, they're gestures that aren't phony. They, they feel like a distillation of emotion. They're true German expressionism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Mitchum does it um, often. He raises up his arm in a sort of a strange supplicating manner um, and, and, and becomes animal-like. Uh, there, there are times when he runs through the undergrowth like a, like a dog, a mad dog. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's sort of got a heightened gesture to it. The children also grab their stomachs and put their hands in their mouth and they do certain quintessential things that express emotion. Mm-hmm. And it's the exact opposite of Lillian Gish, who seems to only act with her eyes. Like, yeah. like she's so still and yet she's got these massive eyes that do all the work for her. And uh, it's just a fascinating mix of, of style. But as you say, it, it feels like it's come from somebody that truly understands performance and how to encapsulate story in a gesture. Yeah. And has so much of it, at least in the documentary footage, so much of it seems unspoken. He just knows how to get people there. He isn't giving them literal stage direction. It's just not necessary. He's just talking yeah. about, I mean, he talks about camera placement. He talks about the lighting. He talks about uh, how to me- how to make a moment work. But it is this strange alchemy of someone who, I still don't know why, I mean, I know why the film didn't, it wasn't successful at the time and, and it was deemed an artsy overreach and a failure, so he didn't get to direct again. But it is inconceivable to me that he only had one movie in him. That yeah. this is all we get as a director from from. I Watton. love the gesture of um, Robert Mitchum's appearance upside down in the prison bunk, where he oh, suddenly yes. appears, um, and, and again, you know, like a startling animal. Suddenly, it's uh, it's, it's perfect. It's, yeah. It just encapsulates everything about him. Well, it's as um, though he's been summoned too, right? He's responding to the story of money. Yeah, and and that's that's one of the sins. There he is. You invoke that, and he sh- he's going to be there. It's the I might have brought this up on Jeremy's podcast. It's the line about 
Roger Ebert wrote it about The Hitcher, uh, the film with C. Thomas Howell and, and Rutger Hauer. Um, the, the whole point of the movie is that there's an almost supernatural inevitability to this meeting that had Howell's character driven down a different road, The Hitcher would still have been right there waiting for him. It's, <laughs> it's always going to happen. And yeah. even though there's nothing else other than the preacher's stamina, perhaps, that is supernatural, that is that is that could be credibly that could be credibly extra normal, paranormal. The the idea that he just shows up, that he always yeah. is where he needs to be to do something worse, or the, to make bo- a situation worse. I love it when the boy says, "Don't he ever sleep?" Yeah, when you know it, it, there is a sense that evil is just coming after him, and it will not let up day yeah. or night, whether it's by horse or car or by river it's it's gonna follow yeah and it is too also it also speaks to the idea that the kids are exhausted that they're not talking about it but this is killing them this this entire ordeal it's not a fun adventure they're going to look back on in a year you know it's not going to be a story they tell their children this is something they're going to repress as soon as they possibly can yeah because it's a nightmare for them and the film is giving us that yeah, I love the music, and it's shades of Bernard Herrmann to me. I, mm. I mean, I, I don't know who is the music director. Is uh, I can't remember who he is right. now. But it comes in with these crashing brass uh, Bernard Herrmann sort of esque notes, and then mm. it will go to a lullaby, and then it will crash in again. So you you're always off kilter. Yeah, it's Walter uh, Schumann. Walter um, Schumann. Okay. I just checked. I, I, I'm not sure of it if he's. I'm presumably he's a master and he's done many films that I'm not aware of. But uh, it certainly is a strong component. I, I watched it before we had our discussion today, and uh, you know that was one of the things that kept coming up was my God, the, the sound is incredible, and it yeah. never lets you settle into one form or another. Yeah, it's just it's jolting, right? Even though the yeah. film is is. is alternating between well not even though literally because the film is alternating between serenity and and rage we're just constantly shaken by it and and pulled along yeah i i saw as i was looking at things related to the movie i saw coincidentally that there is a remake ahead of us that, I just heard about uh, this and, and I refused uh, to accept I, it I, I thought oh god it, it's so scary because you know the 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 brilliance of this film is that it is exploring new ground, that it's uh, taking risks, that it, it was seen as a failure. Uh, and uh, I think that's its abiding strength uh, and its courage. But, you know, the idea of a sort of an homage or, or a, a remake in contemporary clothes, horrific to me. There's just, I was trying to figure out what possible way there might be to do it. And I can't. I just, I, I keep thinking, well, maybe you change it up, but you can't. You can't make the preacher a woman. You can't make the, you can't gender swap the kids. You can't change the setting. You can't bring it forward in time. No. Short of telling it as an absolutely biblical thing where it's savage and uncultured and uncivilized, but then you need the organizing principle of religion and law. So... I mean, I was trying to yeah. figure out, is there a way to do it that is simply primal? But it is primal. The film as we have, yeah. the, the, the 1955 movie is anything it could possibly be. It doesn't, yeah. 
And because it's set in period, that also saves it a little bit because nothing about it feels like it's dated. You couldn't make it cleaner or, it's, or it's pretty also, it up. It's um, also about a period that's slightly earlier than the film was made, right? Like it's, it takes place basically depression in a, era. In, yeah. Depression era. So we're talking like 20 years prior to the actual making of the film. So it's I think so, yeah. set in a past, but it's not specific. It's It's in the past and um it's interesting with this film um i i i I trace the dna of this film to many other films later and uh one that keeps coming to mind is uh badlands uh terence malick's first film i mean it's you know the central character is psychopathic and that's one thing but it's it's also it's it's as if with Terence Malick doing Badlands in the 70s about the 50s yeah he yeah. imbues it with a kind of an it's anti-nostalgia like this film has and um it and, and I keep looking at it and, and and it's almost like our two children now John and Pearl have been transformed into Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek and and they're going on a rampage and and it, it's it's no coincidence to me that Warren Oates is such a, a similar figure to Robert Mitchum. He's such a giant of the screen and such oh, a, yeah. a, a fierce man. And, and that the, they shoot him, you know, Martin Sheen goes and shoots him in cold blood. So they, they, it really feels, you were asking me earlier about what this film does. It, it transcends traditional film in that it doesn't feel contained within the cinematic experience. It seems to bleed into our subconscious. It seems to bleed into other... American films and, and tropes as well. Yeah, it's the Malik illusion is interesting too because I think no one was ready for Badlands at the time in the same way no one was really ready for Night of the Hunter. Yeah, Badlands caught. Badlands found its audience because it was coming at the end of the the new American wave and and people were I think prepared for something like that. Yeah, but then this this connection. Of us, of an evocative narrative, of a way that you can tell a story without, um, or you can make this. I was going to say you can tell a story without metaphor, but you make the metaphor, you bake the metaphor into the story instead. And right, and right. Badlands and Night of the Hunter both feel like something has emerged, and they're both very American films too. Like they're sort very, of, and also Malick's first film, I think. I yeah, think so. There's a sense of experimentation where I might as well throw this into the pot too uh you know he doesn't have a self-image or everything's a risk so why not just go there you know and and i think uh that his language is new both for himself and for his cinematic audience so there's something exciting about that and that's what i find exciting about lawton's voice and lawton bringing the theater into the cinema Uh, and um and i i don't know a lot about malik but i i sense some sort of similarities in there yeah, I think he's very much attuned to the rhythm of film, you know, in the same way that Lawton is, that there's just this this belief that you can reveal through the image and the sound, but mostly the image. If you wait long enough, you will get something. You will find something yeah. uh, that speaks to the story or the story will speak through the film. I, I think about the locust scene in Days of Heaven and how that is, you know, you're watching just a better form of, rapacious capitalism than the exploitation that you've been watching all along and that's not what it's about but it is isn't it it's that's what the movie is about it's about 
trying to perfect your system only to be eaten by a better system that's been in place that you didn't even understand. And, and, and I, th- I agree with you. And I think his films seep into your consciousness in a, in a particular way. Sometimes they infuriate. Uh, sometimes they sort of lead you down a path and you can't quite push, put it all together. But they, they are extraordinary. A Thin Red Line, too, is another one where uh, yeah. it seems to go down a lot of different roads. But they, they, it's a very, very powerful experience. And again, it's kind of a, a cumulative experience. It's not just one single moment or a series of moments. Now, of course, I, I can't go too far with this uh, comparison because <laughs> it really does feel that Lawton's film is very carefully crafted and staged. And uh, there's, there, there is a clear delineation of script and dialogue, uh, whereas Malik, I know, goes into different territory and with voiceovers and all kind, you know, shooting in the midnight hour and, mm-hmm. and things like that. So to get back to uh, Night of the Hunter, um, I hearing it like I, I watched it today and uh, that dialogue is extraordinary and I, I know that there's there are, there are different uh, viewpoints as to who actually came up with the, the whether it was James A.G. the it was the screenwriter or whether it was actually the the original writer of the book um, because uh, and apparently I, I again I just read this today that he he was very fond of illustrating so he gave Lawton a lot of ideas for some of the scenes uh, down the river um, oh. to supplement his words so David Scrub uh, or James yeah, Agee yeah yeah okay yeah so um, but but to, to get back into the world of Night of the Hunter it really does feel like. Um, all the dimensions of fil- filmmaking and theatricality, all the formalities are there and they are being um, used in a very unusual way. It's, it's an incredible mix. It's not the form is, is quite traditional. And I think that maybe gives it some of its power. Now, whether yeah. that's me looking back at a film that was written, you know, made in the 1950s, but it does feel very formal. It does. And it feels that that serves the period as well, that the, it's yeah. just, there's this starkness to the imagery and, and a deliberateness to the camera that makes it feel older than it is, that, that speaks to something deeper. And, and I, I guess the word I would use is aged. It feels as though you're seeing this transmission from even before the period in which it's set. You're just watching, you know, it's like, it's like a parable. You're seeing... Yeah an old story retold, but it's still kind of musty. And it, it's, 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 and now of course it feels ahead of its time as well as beholden to the past in a really strange way, because we see all the other films from the fifties and how maybe conventional in some ways they are and how certain acting styles have not aged as well. And there's not a beat in this movie that feels what 65 years old. It right. just it hasn't aged in the same way as most of the other studio productions at the time. A lot of pulp films, I mean, they're all still struggling with the transition into method acting and and the the sort of staginess that people were doing in in programmers. There's none of that in this. Mitchum is incredibly modern in his performance. I was yes. actually trying to figure this out as a as a little distraction. You know, who who could you possibly if they are remaking it? who would you cast? Because no one could do that. And then I thought, yeah. Ryan Gosling could do it. 
Wow. Okay, he could that's do his self-loathing in a way that I think might work. Yeah. I don't want him to do it. I hope he hears this and refuses. But <laughs> if, you know, there are there are actors, I think, who could capture that quality. Some of it. Mitchum had a unique stature. Mm. And uh, I don't know that. I agree. Um, and I would say for the same reason, actually, I would go to someone like Brad Pitt. Okay. who has uh, the, a lot of the charm. And if you look at the dark side, I, I feel he's a competent enough actor to be able to go there somewhere yeah. like that. But he still doesn't have the... They, 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 they do not have Robert Mitchum power. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix, maybe. Um, mm. uh, you were never really here. Lim Rans, it was, it's an extraordinary performance. I mean, he is an extraordinary actor, but he's a he's a chameleon. He's not... Or, or he brings a chameleon quality to his different roles. Mm-hmm. He is not the, the solid... that Robert Mitchum is Robert Mitchum is yeah. Robert Mitchum. I mean, he brings this persona. Um, and that's why I go to someone like Brad Pitt, who has a persona, but yeah. maybe could cheat it for the, uh, the film. But again, it's too, too much on the bright side, on the light side. It's not yeah. on the dark side. You need side. someone whose charisma has curdled. It, someone uh, who uh, can... Yeah, I mean, the Just other person that. that did it for Mitchum was uh, De Niro, of course, in Cape Fear. Sure. Yep. Uh, where he r- replicated, well, he, he took Mitchum's role and, and redid it or reinvented it. And, and he has, you know, but he's too old now. I mean, yeah, he, he I cannot be that, that preacher now. Because he has to be a sexual force as well. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. Um, but, but you see, this is the, the problem is then we start getting this. Oh, who could it be? And uh, I know. it and takes it away from anyone. the primal. It takes it away from the apocryphal story, you know. And also, so great. We get our, our Robert Mitchum. Then how the hell do you get Lillian Gish, who comes from an entirely different cinematic world? Mm-hmm. And, and her power in in Night of the Hunter was the fact that she was a silent screen actress and that she exudes that different dimension. So how on earth can we do that now? I, I So to do all those different things is impossible. It has to be its own beast. If it's yeah. going to be a, a remake, it has to go in its own completely different direction, I think. But that, of course, would destroy it as well, because what could you possibly do that would improve (laughs) on this? Uh, I was going to say, there is a sort of an unspoken... It's not really a sequel, but there is a film that is in communication with The Night of the Hunter that was released a couple years ago called Night Comes On uh, by by an actor also, a director named Jordana Spiro, who was the... She was the lead in a a sitcom called My Boys on TBS for a few years. She's she's a really fun, engaging actor. And she went off and directed this movie about an 18-year-old girl released from juvenile detention who goes and picks up her younger sister and takes her on a journey back to face their past, effectively. Uh, they share some trauma that isn't immediately explained. And in a really odd way that, that Spiro has talked about on April Wolf's podcast, uh, Switchblade Sisters, she is making a sequel to The Night of the Hunter, a spiritual connection. That the, okay. That is the film that most influenced her. And it's set in the present day. And the two kids are African-American and it completely changes everything else. But the idea right. of these right. two kids growing up and confronting the thing that happened to them, yeah. uh, as I was saying, that they're in a hurry to repress it. I think this is what deals with that. And it's a really fascinating film if you can get a chance to see it. It's, uh, Whoa, I think great. it's on YouTube Thank by you. now. Yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll take that up. And um, anybody listening, too, it's absolutely uh, worth your time. Great. And and it's an interesting thing, isn't it, when you um, really admire a work of art, um, the idea of it being 
reproduced or recalibrated or updated is, is always a bit terrifying. But um, I, I mean, an example where I, I, I felt that, that what you're saying is, is really interesting and, and I, a, an example of work I've directly been involved with yeah. was I will always remember that um, when we shot Hardcore Logo with Bruce McDonald, he always said, I want this to be Spinal Tap's nasty little brother. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, you know, and it's, it's a great way to pay uh, respects to uh, a great work or a very specific cultural institution and then take it somewhere, take it. And, and I do think that that's possible with Night of the Hunter because it, as, as we've constantly gone back to it it is one of those films that just operates on so many different levels yeah but should you i mean is i i i I can't imagine it that's the problem i cannot imagine it working it would be like someone announcing they're going to remake lawrence of arabia Um, yeah what would be the point it said everything it could have said the first time i mean maybe now there's room for a version that's more explicit but i don't need that I don't know that it needs to be there. The the beauty of O'Toole's performance in that film is that it's so internal, and and we yeah. see him grappling with things without ever having to speak of them. Uh, and yeah. In the same way with the Night of the Hunter, it's the only way you could improve or expand it would be to become more graphic, which I think would be less satisfying because so much of the film is presented as a nightmare that these kids don't fully understand. If if yeah. I don't know, and yeah, you can't you can't set it in the present. You can't set it in the in the recent no. past. There's just Case no point. In point, um, I, I just go back to my admiration for this film. Uh, sure. a, a wonderful moment uh, at the beginning is we we have an aerial shot, which I again I don't know how they do it. I presumably with a helicopter, um, but it's a sweeping shot of a landscape of a a beautiful American suburban town. And uh, we see children in, in a huddle playing hide-and-go-seek. They, they split off, and then we, see, we follow one boy go to a, a door opening, and we see a pair of legs, and it, they belong to a dead woman, and they're mm-hmm. the first of the preacher's victims. It's an extraordinary scene. It's really unsettling, but it's incredibly economical without any lingering shots or, or any uh, nasty details we get it we get it very very quickly yeah. and those those are the kind of things that it's very difficult to take a, a film or a work about from a particular generation and transpose into a, a you know 50 years later 60 years later uh, so that it's it's tonal as well. Like, how on earth do you re- replicate that? But anyway, yeah. I, it was an excuse for me to sort of enjoy that moment. I, I love all the aerial shots. There's, there's about four or five of them. And it feels like, oh, they've, the studio's actually given Lawton a bit of money to, to make a sort of a spectacular go of this scene. And he uses it beautifully and economically. And there seem to be about two or three moments where Robert Mitchum's riding a horse and then there's, there's that the, the, the one of the kids playing. And then there's another... Oh, well, then there's all the river stuff, which is all studio. But, um, but anyway, you, you feel that you're seeing this world from all kinds of angles. Oh, and then there's that incredible shot where the children take shelter in a barn and there's mm-hmm. all kinds of Christian imagery going on there. Yeah. And they go in their barn and then there's a long tracking shot of the children as they go into the barn and they find their way into the hayloft. But the camera goes underneath about four or five cows' udders. Yes. And it's a, the strangest shot. And I, it sort of comes out of nowhere. It's the first time we've actually seen 
an animal that that seems to be welcoming. It's not a frog or an owl or a fox that's mm. or a spider that's on their journey. It's part of the natural world that's actually um, welcoming, yeah, and, sustaining, and nurturing. Yeah, yeah. It's but it's an extraordinary shot, and I wonder if uh, you know, like. I can just see the producers saying, well, we, we, we gave you all the equipment for this incredible shot and you came up with a bunch of cows, others? Like, what are you doing? You know, it, it felt, it, it feels at once um, risky and totally logical at the same time. Well, and that's the genius of the film is that it has the confidence to tell us in every shot that it knows what it's doing. Even the most outlandish pulpy images are still grounded in this threat in this story where the world makes sense even though it shouldn't people should figure this guy out adults should cap should cotton on there should be rejection there should be he should never get out of prison he's so transparently fraudulent and yet the kids are the only ones who really understand his menace and that's that weird thing the movie is doing it's it's showing us how he's casting this or how there is the spell that's being cast and these intrusions of, I think, the strange imagery, the shots that don't quite make sense, they're all part of the film's design to keep us believing that this is possible. I don't know right. if I'm explaining it right. It's, yeah, yeah. it's as though the film is, is conjuring as it goes and, yeah. and casting the spell that makes it all work. I think it's one of those things that I, I'm accustomed to as the magic of the theatre, and somehow mm. that magic comes into the cinema and and it's rare that you get a magical ingredient that that feels to that that it can um transcend the screen and the limitations of the medium but this is one that 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 does yeah those moments are so few and far between i uh yeah it's wonderful to see one that that just is one big moment for an hour and a half that just traps you inside of its spell and so this does sort of bring us to the to the closing question on the podcast uh, and you sort of alluded to it with hardcore logo but is there anything of the night of the hunter that you yourself have lifted or borrowed or or paid homage to or just outright stolen in the course of your career no i i mean it's it's influenced me that commitment to performance mm-hmm. i find compelling and um that crossover between theater and cinema uh, i i grew up in the theater and i came originally to Canada with a theatre show and, and then I started to learn the film and television medium and the, the, the way to, to act for a camera and, and to take it out of a live performance. But I, for me to capture the, the magic or the, or the danger of, of live performance is really important, which is, I, I love rock and roll. I love, I love live stuff. So, mm. so I guess... It's, a, it's been an example for me um, and an inspiration for me. Um, but I haven't consciously copied. I've just taken it as, um, as, as something to, to inspire me. So it's more about the energy. It's about... The, abs- absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and also that, um, that sense that I, I hear about Lawton and his sense of failure about the, the film. And... Um, as an artist, um, it's reassuring when I hear how frail and vulnerable a genius like him is. You know, um, good God knows we all have our doubts and we all do projects and we say, what, what are we doing this for? Oh, nobody likes it. Um, it's not being received well. And yet, you know, it's 
one of the great works of art of the, the 20th century, I think. So um, I guess that gives me hope and it, it makes me stop feeling sorry for myself a bit too when I, when I see great um, work like that. Um, but, I, but I also see up on the screen the frailty and the vulnerability of the artists involved and, and the stories that they're telling. Uh, they're reaching us on many, many levels. Yeah. And it's, I mean, if you get lucky, it echoes. If you, if you make something like this, even though people, yeah, don't flock to see it in, initially, it, it's more powerful now than I think it might have been even then. Yeah. I, I, you know, and as an example, I, I, I tend to play a lot of characters that are, you know, dark or go into a, a very particular kind of expectation for the audience. Um, for me, it's always important um, to introduce the counterpoint and to defy the expectation or to, to, to dig around for the humanity in something that seems to be pretty um, clear. You know, we were discussing this about the characters, um, you know, how some of them feel really fleshed out and rounded out. And we care for them that much more and they become more important to us. Yeah. I mean, it's always about the humanity, isn't it? I mean, otherwise, even the preacher has weaknesses. It's it's what makes him, well, I was going to say relatable, but it's what makes him fascinating to me. Because if he, yes. was, if he was just a Terminator, what would be the point? He wouldn't be nearly as compelling as he, as he ultimately is, the way Mitchum plays him. Yeah, and drawn to humanity, um, but unable to commit. Um, he's terrified of it as well. Um, yeah. So there's a repression and a denial that, again, makes him very human, actually. Um, so it's, you know, again, this, this film always touches on frailty and vulnerability. And, and that's something that I think as a performer uh, we live with all the time. And I think that an audience intuitively responds to that. Um, even in the most uh, oppressive of characters, uh, it's an important quality. Yeah. Well, we want to see what they'll do, if nothing else, right? Because, yeah. you know, I can't conceive of him. I can't conceive of his next move. So I hope he makes it so I can understand him a little yeah. bit better, even though I yeah. probably don't want him to do whatever it is he's going to do. Yeah. My thanks to Julian Richings, who you'll be able to see September 1st in Anything for Jackson... Go get your tickets now at FantasiaFestival.com. Until then, content yourself with the dozens, if not hundreds, of other films and television shows he's made. Maybe start with Patriot on Amazon Prime. It's really good. You can find Julian on Twitter at Julian Richings, all one word, and you can find The Night of the Hunter on Blu-ray and DVD in that excellent Criterion edition I mentioned. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play, but only the Criterion discs have that amazing behind-the-scenes documentary. Also, Jordana Spiro's Night Comes On is streaming on Amazon Prime, so you should look that up as well. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where in addition to writing about film and television, I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts. Go check them out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. Stay inside. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Don't trust weird preachers. I'll see you next time. <laughs>